am Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Today, we are on Chapter 12 of Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood. So far, very little blood. Charles Holland wished to be alone, if ever any human being had wished fervently to be so. His thoughts were most fearfully oppressive. I'm already laughing at Charles Holland. The communication that had been made to him by Henry Bannerworth had about it too many strange, confirmatory circumstances to enable him to treat it in his own mind with the disrespect that some mere freak of a distracted and weak imagination would (laughs) most probably have received from him. Wow. I see his respect for the Bannerworth family has changed somewhat. (laughs) A little bit. Imagine in one night. In one night. He had found Flora in a state of excitement which could arise only from some such terrible cause as had been mentioned by her brother, and then he was, from an occurrence which certainly never could have entered into his calculations, asked to forego the bright dream of happiness which he had held so long and so rapturously to his heart. How truly he found that the course of true love ran not smooth, and yet how little would anyone have suspected that from such a cause as that which now oppressed his mind any obstruction would arise. Oh boy, that's a lot of words. Flora might have been fickle and false, he might have seen some other fairer face which might have enchained his fancy, and woven for him a new heart's chain, death might have stepped between him and the realization of his fondest hopes, loss of fortune might have made the love cruel which would have yoked its distress as a young and beautiful girl, reared in the lap of luxury, and who was not, even by those who loved her, suffered to feel, even in later years, any of the pinching necessities of the family. This bitch just say he would have rather have had Flora die. Yeah. Oh my god. All these things were possible, some of them were probable, and yet none of them had occurred. She loved him still, and he, although he had looked on many a fair face and basked in the sunny smiles of beauty, had never for a moment forgotten her faith or lost his devotion to his own dear English girl. Apparently, you should have killed her. (laughs) It would have been far preferable. Fortune he had enough for both. Death had not even threatened to rob him of the prize of such a noble and faithful heart which he had won. But a horrible superstition had arisen which seemed to place at once an impassable abyss between them, and to say to him, in a voice of thundering denunciation, Charles Holland, will you have a vampire for your bride? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I remember Twilight being a little different. (laughs) The thought was terrific. (laughs) What a terrific thought! He paced the gloomy chamber to and fro with rapid strides, until the idea came across his mind that by so doing he might not only be proclaiming to his kind entertainers how much he was mentally distracted, but he likewise might be seriously distracting them. Okay. The moment this occurred to him, he sat down and was profoundly still for some time. He then glanced at the light which had been given to him, and he found himself almost unconsciously engaged in a mental calculation as to how long it would last him in the night. Half ashamed, then, of such terrors, as such a consideration would seem to indicate, he was on the point of hastily extinguishing it when he happened to cast his eyes on the now mysterious and highly interesting portrait in the panel. The picture, as a picture, was well done, whether it was a correct likeness or not to the party whom it represented. It was one of those kind of portraits that seem so lifelike that, as you look at them, they seem to return your gaze fully, and even to follow you with their eyes from place to place. My man's bought in real quick. By candlelight, such an effect is more likely to become striking and remarkable than by daylight, and now, as Charles Holland shaded his own lies from the light, so as to cast its full radiance upon the portrait, he felt wonderfully interested in its lifelike appearance. Here is true skill, he said, such as I have not before seen. 
How strangely this likeness of a man whom I never saw seems to gaze upon me. <laughs> he hadn't thought about leaving Flora until now. Unconsciously, too, he aided the effect, which he justly enough called lifelike, by a slight movement of the candle, such as any one not blessed with nerves of iron would be sure to make, and such a movement made the face look as if it was inspired with vitality. Wow. Charles remained looking at the portrait for a considerable period of time. He found a kind of fascination in it which prevented him from drawing his eyes away from it. It was not fear which induced him to continue gazing on it, but the circumstance that it was a likeness of the man who, after death, was supposed to have borrowed so new and so hideous an existence, combined with its artistic merits, chained him to the spot. I shall now, he said, know that face again, let me see it where I may, or under what circumstances I may. Each feature is now indelibly fixed upon my memory, I can never mistake it. Audience. <laughs> Alright, he's in love with it. He's in love with the painting. He's in love with the picture. It's painting. It's a painting. <laughs> <laughs> My greatest work. He turned aside as he uttered these words, and as he did so, his eye fell upon part of the ornamental frame which composed the edge of the panel, and which seemed to him to be of a different color from the surrounding portion. Curiosity and increased interest prompted him at once to make a closer inquiry into the matter, and by a careful and diligent scrutiny, he was almost induced to come to the positive opinion that at no very distant period in time past, the portrait had been removed from the place it occupied. When once this idea, even vague and indistinct as it was, in consequence of the slight grounds he formed it on, had got possession of his mind, he felt most anxious to prove its verification or its fallacy. He held the candle in a variety of situations so that its light fell in different ways on the picture, and the more he examined it, the more he felt convinced that it must have been moved lately. It would appear as if, in its removal, a piece of the old oaken carved framework of the panel had been accidentally broken off, which caused the new look of the fracture, and that this accident, from the nature of the broken bit of framing, could have occurred in any other way than from actual or attempted removal of the picture, he felt was extremely likely. Unlikely, even. <laughs> I'm so glad Charles Holland is walking us through all of this. Didn't the Bannerworth boys just try to remove it? Yes, and they couldn't. So I'm wondering if this is going to be a plot thing, or if the author forgot that he had written that it was immovable. <laughs> he set down the candle on a chair near at hand, and tried if the panel was fast in its place. Upon the very first touch, he felt convinced it was not so, and that it easily moved. How to get it out, though, presented a difficulty, and to get it out was tempting. Who knows, he said to himself, what may be behind it. This is an old baronial sort of hall and the greater portion of it was, no doubt, built at a time when the construction of such places as hidden chambers and intricate staircases were, in all buildings of importance, considered a desiderata. Oh, my. A desiderata? Dee, do you know what desiderata means? Uh, no. I'm familiar with the word, but not like its meaning. Because I don't know what it means. It's, I know it's a poem, so you're gonna have to look it up. Okay, it's Latin for things desired. To long for, desire, feel the want of, miss, or regret. That doesn't sound quite like what he meant to convey. So, I don't know how it applies to the building of hidden chambers and intricate staircases in buildings of importance. I don't think it means what he think it means. <laughs> <laughs> that he should make some discovery behind the portrait now became an idea that possessed him strongly, although he certainly had no definite grounds for really supposing that he should do so. <laughs> Good sign. It was a stupid idea and he knew it, but he did it anyway. It's a dumb jackass idea and he said, well, fuck off, why not? 
Perhaps the wish was more the father to the thought than he, in the partial state of excitement he was in, really imagined, but so it was. He felt convinced that he should not be satisfied until he had removed that panel from the wall and seen what was immediately behind it. After the panel containing the picture had been placed where it was, it appeared that pieces of molding had been inserted all around, which had the effect of keeping it in its place, and it was a fracture of one of these pieces which had first called Charles Holland's attention to the probability of the picture having been removed. Again, cannot stress enough how, like, maybe two nights ago, the banner with siblings tried really hard to remove this and got nowhere. I'm super confused. This is actually going to be a satisfying plot payoff if that if there is an explanation for this. That he should have to get two, at least, of the pieces of molding away before he could hope to remove the picture was to him quite apparent, and he was considering how he should accomplish such a result when he was suddenly startled by a knock at his chamber door. Until that sudden demand for admission at his door came, he scarcely knew to what a nervous state he had worked himself up. It was an odd sort of tap, one only, a single tap, as if someone demanded admittance and wished to awaken his attention with the least possible chance of disturbing anyone else. I'm really glad that they clarified how many taps it was. Come in, said Charles, for he knew he had not fastened his door. Come in. There was no reply, but after a moment's pause, the same sort of low tap came again. Again he cried, come in, but whoever it was seemed determined that the door should be opened for him, and no movement was made from the outside. A third time the tap came, and Charles was very close to the door when he heard it, for with a noiseless step he had approached it, intending to open it. The instant this third mysterious demand for admission came, he did open it wide. There was no one there. <gasps> in an instant, he crossed the threshold into the corridor, which ran right and left. A window at one end of it now sent in the moon's rays, so that it was tolerably light, but he could see no one. Indeed, to look for anyone he felt sure was needless, for he had opened his chamber door almost simultaneously with the last knock for admission. Oh my god, a spooky ghost? It is strange, he said as he lingered on the threshold of his room door for some moments. My imagination could not so completely deceive me. There was most certainly a demand for admission. Slowly, then, he returned to his room again and closed the door behind him. One thing is evident, he said, that if I am in this apartment to be subjected to these annoyances, I shall get no rest, which will soon exhaust me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, after the night you've had, Charles, I'm surprised you thought you were going to get any sleep. This thought was a very provoking one, and the more he thought that he should ultimately find a necessity for giving up that chamber he had himself asked as a special favor to be allowed to occupy... The more vexed he became to think what construction might be put upon his conduct for so doing. They will all fancy me a coward, he thought, and that I dare not sleep here. They may not, of course, say so, but they will think that my appearing so bold was one of those acts of bravado which I have not courage to carry fairly out. Didn't he save their lives on, like, a mountain or something? Do they have any right to call him anything other than, like, cool guy that they like? Yeah, I know, he absolutely saved Flora's life on a mountainside. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I think they'd be real shitty if they were like, oh, scared of the ghost. Taking this view of the matter was just the way to enlist a young man's pride in staying under all circumstances where he was, and with a slight accession of color, which, even though he was alone, would visit his cheeks, Charles Holland said aloud, I will remain the occupant of this room come what may, happen what may. No terrors, real or unsubstantial, shall drive me from it. I will brave them all and remain here to brave them. Again, Saying this out loud in an empty room to no one. Very, very normal behavior. Tap came the knock at the door again, and now, with more an air of vexation than fear, Charles turned again towards it and listened. 
tap and another minute again succeeded, and much annoyed, he walked close to the door and laid his hand upon the lock, ready to open it at the precise moment of another demand for admission being made. He had not to wait long. In about half a minute it came again, and simultaneously with the sound, the door flew open. There was no one to be seen, but as he opened the door, he heard a strange sound in the corridor, a sound which could scarcely be called a groan and scarcely a sigh, but seemed a compound of both, having the agony of one combined with the sadness of the other. From what direction it came he could not at the moment decide, but he called out, "'Who's there? Who's there?' The echo of his own voice alone answered him for a few moments, and then he heard a door open and a voice, which he knew to be Henry's, cried, "'What is it? Who speaks?' "'Henry,' said Charles. "'Yes, yes, yes.' <laughs> Three times?' "'I fear I have disturbed you.' "'You have been disturbed yourself, or you would not have done so. I shall be with you in a moment.' "'Ooh.' Henry closed his door before Charles Holland could tell him not to come to him, as he intended to do, for he felt ashamed to have, in a manner of speaking, summoned assistance for so trifling a cause of alarm as that to which he had been subjected. However, he could not go to Henry's chamber to forbid him from coming to his, and more vexed than before, he retired to his room again to await his coming. <laughs> Why couldn't he go over? He left the door open now, so that Henry Bannerworth, when he had got some articles of dress, walked in at once, saying, "'What has happened, Charles?' A mere trifle, Henry, concerning which I am ashamed you should have been at all disturbed. Never mind that, I was wakeful. I heard a door open, which kept me listening, but I could not decide which door it was till I heard your voice in the corridor. Well, it was this door, and I opened it twice in consequence of the repeated taps for admission that came to it. Someone has been knocking at it, and when I go to it, lo, I can see nobody. <laughs> lo. Lo, the empty door. <laughs> Indeed. Such is the case. You surprise me. I am very sorry to have disturbed you, because, upon such a ground, I do not feel I ought to have done so, and when I called out in the corridor, I assure you it was with no such intention. Do not regret it for a moment, said Henry. You were quite justified in making an alarm on such an occasion. It's strange enough, but still it may arise from some accidental cause, admitting, if we did but know it, of some ready enough explanation. It may, certainly, but after what has happened already, we may well suppose a mysterious connection between any unusual sight or sound and the fearful ones we have already seen. Certainly we may. How earnestly that strange portrait seems to look upon us, Charles. It does, and I have been examining it carefully. It seems to have been removed lately. Removed? Yes, I think, as far as I can judge, that it has been taken from its frame. I mean that the panel on which it is painted has been taken out. Indeed. If you touch it, you will find it loose, and upon a close examination, you will perceive that a piece of the molding which holds it in its place has been chipped off, which is done in such a place, I think, could only have arisen during the removal of the picture. Will Henry mention that he and his brother attempted to pry it off the wall, like, two nights ago? Oh, unironically, uh, unironically on tenterhooks over here. You must be mistaken, says Henry. Ah, that's a payoff! It's a payoff! It's a mystery! Oh my god, oh, hold on, I gotta pop, gotta pop a big bottle. That's a real mystery. <laughs> I cannot, of course, take upon myself, Henry, to say precisely that such is the case, said Charles. But there is no one here to do so. That I cannot say. Will you permit me and assist me to remove it? I have a great curiosity to know what is behind it. If you have, I certainly will do so. We thought of taking it away altogether, but when Flora left this room, the idea was given up as useless. Remain here a few moments, and I will endeavor to find something which shall, which shall assist us in its removal. <laughs> Henry left the mysterious chamber in order to search his room for some means of removing the framework of the picture, so that the panel would slip easily out, and while he was gone, Charles Holland continued gazing upon it with greater interest, if possible, than before. Yo, he's in love with that painting. 
In a few minutes, Henry returned, and although he, what he had succeeded in finding were very inefficient implements for the purpose, yet with this aid, the two young men set about the task. We don't get to know what it is? It could be anything? Is it forks? It is said, and said truly enough, that where there is a will, there is a way, and although the young men had no tools at all adapted for the purpose, they did succeed in removing the molding from the sides of the panel, and then by little tapping at one end of it, and using a knife at a lever at one end of the panel, they got it fairly out. That doesn't seem very difficult, I'm gonna be honest. Disappointment was all they got for their pains. On the other side, there was nothing but a rough wooden wall, against which the finer and more nicely finished oak paneling of the chamber rested. Fuck off. What? <laughs> there is no mystery here, said Henry. Fuck Oh my god, he's chiding me directly. <laughs> None whatever, said Charles, as he tapped the wall with his knuckles and found it all hard and sound. We are foiled. We are indeed. Bite my ass. <laughs> we were so close to a real mystery. The actual vampire isn't enough of a mystery for you? No, because it just keeps getting shot, and I have no reason to think that it's not going to continue on that way. I had a strange presentiment now, added Charles, that we should make some discovery that would repay us for our trouble. It appears, however, that is such not to be the case. For you see, nothing presents itself to us but the most ordinary appearances. I perceive as much, and the panel itself, although of more than ordinary thickness, is, after all, but a bit of planed oak and apparently fashioned for no other object than to paint the portrait on. True. Shall we replace it? Charles reluctantly assented, and the picture was replaced in its original position. We say Charles reluctantly assented because, although he had now the ocular demonstration that there was really nothing behind the panel but the ordinary woodwork which might have been expected from the construction of the old house, yet he could not, even with such effect staring him in the face, get rid entirely of the feeling that it had come across him, to the effect that the picture had some mystery or another. You are not yet satisfied, said Henry, as he observed the doubtful look of Charles Holland's face. My dear friend, said Charles, I will not deceive you. I am much disappointed that we have made no discovery behind that picture. Yeah, I mean, me too, Charles. Heaven knows we have mysteries enough in our family, said Henry. Even as he spoke, they were both startled by a strange clattering noise at the window, which was accompanied by a shrill, odd kind of shriek, which sounded fearful and preternatural on the night air. Oh god, pterodactyls. What is that, said Charles? God only knows, said Henry. The two young men naturally turned their earnest gaze in the direction of the window, which we have before remarked was one unprovided with shutters, and there, to their intense surprise, they saw slowly rising up from the lower part of it what appeared to be a human form. <laughs> it's really funny to imagine. Right, you're so tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Henry would have dashed forward, but Charles restrained him, and drawing quickly from its case a large holster pistol, he leveled it carefully at the figure, saying in a whisper, Henry, if I don't hit it, I will consent to forfeit my head. <laughs> it's gonna kill himself? Apparently. It's fine. If this is the vampire, it's gonna get hit. I said once already that the vampire just keeps getting shot. He pulled the trigger, a loud report followed, the room was filled with smoke, and then all was still. A circumstance, however, had occurred as a consequence of the concussion of air produced by the discharge of the pistol, which neither of the young men had for the moment calculated upon, and that was the putting out of the only light that they were at. What? Is that real? I gotta ask someone who knows how guns work. In spite of this circumstance, Charles, the moment he had discharged the pistol, dropped it and sprung forward to the window, but here he was perplexed, for he could not find the old-fashioned intricate fastening which held it shut, and he had to call to Henry. 
Henry, for God's sake, open the window for me, Henry. The fastening of the window is known to you, but not to me. Open it for me. What a helpless little bitch. You don't know how to open a window? Thus called upon, Henry sprung forward, and by this time the report of the pistol had effectually alarmed the whole household. The flashing of lights from the corridor came into the room, and in another minute, just as Henry succeeded in getting the window wide open and Charles Holland had made his way onto the balcony, both George Bennerworth and Mr. Marchdale entered the chamber, eager to know what had occurred. To their eager questions, Henry replied, "'Ask me not now!' And then calling to Charles, he said, "'Remain where you are, Charles, while I run down to the garden immediately beneath the balcony.' "'Yes, yes,' said Charles. Henry made prodigious haste and was in the garden immediately below the bay window in a wonderfully short space of time. He spoke to Charles, saying, "'Will you now descend? I can see nothing here, but we will both make a search.' George and Mr. Marchdale were both now in the balcony, and they would have descended likewise, but Henry said, "'Do not all leave the house. God only knows now, situated as we are, what might happen.'" The only person thinking right now. <laughs> I will remain then, said George. I have been sitting up tonight as the guard, and therefore may as well continue to do so. Marchdale and Charles Holland clambered over the balcony, and easily, from its insignificant height, dropped into the garden. The night was beautiful and profoundly still. There was not a breath of air sufficient to stir a leaf on a tree, and the very flame of the candle which Charles had left burning in the balcony burnt clearly and steadily, being perfectly unruffled by any wind. I thought that it had gotten put out when they shot. Listen, that was entire paragraphs ago. <laughs> <laughs> someone, someone silently and invisibly relit it while we weren't looking. It cast a sufficient light close to the window to make everything very plainly visible, and it was evident at a glance that no object was there, although had that figure which Charles shot at and no doubt hit been flesh and blood, it must have dropped immediately below. As they looked up for a moment after a cursory examination of the ground, Charles exclaimed, Look at the window. As the light is now situated, you can see the hole made in one of the panes of glass by the passage of the bullet from my pistol. Could you not see it before somehow? You can just say the bullet. Everything else is implied. I'm confused as to how when they were in the room they couldn't see the hole in the glass made by the bullet. They did look. And there, the clear round hole without any starring, which a bullet discharged close to a pane of glass will make in it, was clearly and plainly discernible. It's a good glass. Shit. You must have hit him, said Henry. One would think so, said Charles, for that was the exact place where the figure was. And there is nothing here, added Marchdale. What can we think of these events? What resource has the mind against the most dreadful suppositions concerning them? Charles and Henry were both silent. In truth, they knew not what to think, and the words uttered by Marchdale were too strikingly true to dispute for a moment. They were lost in wonder. Human means against such an appearance as we saw tonight, said Charles, are evidently useless. My dear young friend, said Marchdale with much emotion as he grasped Henry Bannerworth's hand, Ooh. and the tears stood in his eyes as he did so. Ooh. My dear young friend, these constant alarms will kill you. They will drive you and all whose happiness you hold dear distracted. You must control these dreadful feelings, and there is but one chance that I can see of getting now the better of these. What is that? By leaving this place forever. <laughs> Finally! Alas, am I to be driven from the home of my ancestors from such a cause as this? Yeah, well, you, you guys were going to leave before because you're poor. And whither am I to fly? Where are we to find a refuge? To leave here will be at once to break up the establishment which is now held together, certainly upon the sufferance of creditors, but still to their advantage, inasmuch as I am doing what no one else would do, namely paying away to within the scantiest pittance of the whole procedure of the state that spreads around me. Thank you, Henry. <laughs> Heed nothing but an escape from such horrors as seem to be accumulating now around you. If I were sure that such a removal would bring with it such a corresponding advantage, I might indeed be induced to risk all to accomplish it. 
As regards poor Geoflora, said Mr. Marchdale, I know not what to say or what to think. She has been attacked by a vampire. And after this mortal life shall have ended, it is dreadful to think there may be a possibility that she, with all her beauty, all her excellence and purity of mind, and all those virtues and qualities which should make her the beloved of all, and which do indeed attach all hearts towards her, should become one of the dreadful tribe of beings who cling to existence by feeding, in the most dreadful manner, upon the lifeblood of others. Oh, it is too dreadful to contemplate. Too horrible. Too horrible. Oh god, Mr. Marchdale, get a hold of yourself. Then wherefore speak of it, said Charles with some asperity. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> now, by the great God of heaven who sees all our hearts, I will not give in to such a horrible doctrine. I will not believe it, and were death itself my portion for my want of faith, I would this moment die in my disbelief of anything so truly fearful. <laughs> Go fuck yourself! Oh, my young friend, added Marchdale, if anything could add to the pains which all who love and admire and respect Flora Bannerworth must feel at the unhappy condition in which she is placed... It would be the noble nature of you who, under happier auspices, would have been her guide through life and the happy partner of her destiny. Ooh, past tense. M Marchdale, what you saying? As I will be still. Oh? May heaven forbid it. We are now among ourselves and can talk freely upon such a subject. Mr. Charles Holland, if you wed, you would look forward to be blessed with children. Those sweet ties which bind the sternest hearts to life with so exquisite a bondage. Oh, fancy then for a moment the mother of your babes coming at the still hour of midnight to drain from their veins the very lifeblood she gave to them. What? Whoa! Marchdale, Jesus Christ. Charles, if you marry Flora, she'll eat your babies. Charles, she will eat your babies. Like, that'll happen. To drive you and them mad with the expected horror of such visitations, to make your nights hideous, your days with so many hours of melancholy retrospection. Oh, you know not the world of terror on the awful brink which you stand when you talk of making Flora Bannerworth a wife. Peace, oh peace, said Henry. Jesus, yeah. Chill. <laughs> Nay, I know my words are unwelcome, continued Mr. Marchdale. It happens, unfortunately, for human nature that truth and some of our best and holiest feelings are too often at variance and hold a sad contest. I will hear no more of this, cried Charles Holland. <laughs> I will hear no more. <laughs> I have done, said Mr. Marchdale. And twere well you had not begun. <laughs> oh, oh, these boys are going to have at it. Nay, say not so. I have but done what I considered was a solemn duty. Under the assumption of doing duty, a solemn duty, heedless of the feelings of the opinions of others, said Charles sarcastically, more mischief is produced, more heartburnings and anxieties caused than by any other two causes of such mischievous results combined. I wish to hear no more of this. Do not be angered with Mr. Marchdale, Charles, said Henry. He can have no motive but our welfare in what he says. Or can he? Or can he? Be really convenient if Charles abandoned marrying Flora, wouldn't it, Mr. Marchdale? Wouldn't it just? We should not condemn a speaker because his words may not sound pleasant to our ears. By heaven, said Charles with animation, I meant not to be illiberal, but I will not, because I cannot see a man's motives for active interference in the affairs of others, always be ready, merely on account of such ignorance, to jump to a conclusion that they must be estimable. <laughs> I'm with Charles on this one. Tomorrow I leave this house, said Marchdale. Oh no! Oh my god, he's pulling a fucking YouTuber. Fine, I guess I'll just go then. You don't want to hear from me, I guess I'll just leave. I guess I'll leave my channel. Leave us, exclaimed Henry. Aye, forever. <laughs> oh my god, I guess I'll just go. Yeah, you clearly don't want me around. Nay, now, Mr. Marchdale, is this generous? Am I treated generously by one who is your own guest and towards whom I was willing to hold out the honest right hand of friendship? You attacked him and then immediately told him his fiancée was a monster, would kill your children, and to leave. 
Henry turned to Charles Holland, saying, Charles, I know your generous nature. Say you meant no offense to my mother's old friend. If to say I meant no offense, said Charles, is to say I meant no insult, I say it freely. <laughs> oh, I like that. Enough, cried Marchdale. I am satisfied. What a dramatic bitch. But do not, added Charles, draw on me any more such pictures as the one you have already presented to my imagination, I beg of you. From the storehouse of my own fancy I can find quite enough to make me wretched if I choose to be so, but again and again do I say I will not allow this monstrous superstition to tread me down like the tread of a giant on a broken reed. I will contend against it while I have life to do so. Bravely spoken. And when I desert Flora Bannerworth, may heaven from that moment desert me. Charles, cried Henry with emotion, dear Charles, my more than friend, brother Ooh. of my heart, noble Charles. Oh, this is why Marchdale don't like him. He's trying to steal Henry. Nay, Henry, I am not entitled to your praises. I were base indeed to be other than that which I purpose to be. Come weal or woe, come what may, I am the affianced husband of your sister, and she, and she only, can break asunder the tie that binds me to her. Yo, he's been drinking his respecting women juice. He has. Thus ends chapter 12. What a ride. In which fuck all happened. Nothing. But it took 4,000 words to do so. Got my hopes up for like a mystery. It actually said, wow, it would have been really satisfying if there had been a mystery to solve here. In the book. <laughs> that they did. Like that would have been a cool story if that had happened. Anyway, <laughs> let's not do that. Let's not do the cool, interesting, fun thing. Let's instead faff about for a bit and accomplish nothing. I really like that Charles Holland's just like, well, this is really disappointing. Like, yeah, on God, yeah. <laughs> and then fucking Mr. March just, just comes in. And he's just like, oh, y'all, you gonna marry her? Oh, she's gonna have big teeth. She's gonna, ah, ah, ah. oh, she's gonna kill your kids. Gross. You're gonna marry that? <laughs> what a night. I gotta say, I'm still a Holland days. You're still a Holland days? You're still Charles Holland all the way? I mean, he's right. He's so right. He can't. You can't just fucking like fuck around and make assumptions. You can't just be like, "Oh, well, she's definitely gonna kill your kids, and, her, and she's gonna die, and you're gonna die, and her vampires are real." Like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of want a Charles Holland and Chillingworth spinoff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buzzfeed unsolved too. This time it's Charles Holland and Chillingworth. Although I will say. I am still Team Varney because I'm always on the vampire side. <laughs> well, well, little guy needs a win. This is, I believe, the fifth time he's been shot. Yeah, at this point, he's really the underdog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't fault you for that. For a titular character, he sure is getting the short end of the stick, huh? <laughs> he's been shot many times. All right. Well, thank you all for supporting the podcast and joining us for this chapter of Varney the Vampire. Tune in next week for Chapter 13, The Offer for the Hall, The Visit to Sir Francis Varney, The Strange Resemblance, A Dreadful Suggestion. And haven't they all been dreadful suggestions? I'm excited that something might actually happen in this chapter. Yeah, that does sound pretty exciting. <laughs> and I'm also excited for the special guest we'll get to read it with. Yes! Au revoir! Goodbye!